Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on May 10th, 2022, episode 63, The World Has Gone Crazy. A lot has happened since this podcast took a hiatus from discussion of more current events and traveled back in time to get some perspective. In this episode, I'm going to do my best to try to cover some of the bigger stories and issues hitting news headlines in the past couple months and try to bring the discussion back to one of actual facts, laws, and rationality. From the impending purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk, to the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion seeming to overrule Roe v. Wade, to the creation of a disinformation governance board in President Biden's Department of Homeland Security, to the results in recent primaries, our political and legal landscape just keeps getting weirder and weirder, with no end in sight to the insanity being voiced upon us by politicians, bureaucrats, media figures, and more. When European nations can sit back in awe at the radical progressive posture being taken publicly by so many in this country, it is time to stand up to bring the discussion back to earth and back to resembling something similar to the United States of America created by our founders and tied to law and legal process, not to emotion, self-entitlement, and a refusal to act responsibly for oneself. There is no better place to start today's episode, perhaps, than the Supreme Court leak of the draft opinion in the case of Dobbs v. Mississippi, in which abortion supporters challenged a Mississippi law that prohibited abortion, except in very limited cases, after the point of 15 weeks gestation. This case presented the Supreme Court with a chance to revisit the legally weak opinion of Roe v. Wade, in which a majority of the court in 1973 created a non-existent right to abortion in a constitution that in no way mentions the term abortion. I discussed the legal aspects of the abortion issue in more depth in episode 53 earlier this year, but today's circumstance is even more troubling than the decades-old division over abortion. It raises concerns about a person, political party, or activist group willing to delegitimize the court in order to gain politically on this issue. We do not yet know who leaked the draft opinion, written by Justice Samuel Alito, and purportedly joined in by four of the other justices. But some assumptions can be made about the leaker. The leaker has no regard for our judicial system, the law, or the Supreme Court. The leaker was trying to gain either advantage for himself or herself 
or to attempt, completely inappropriately, to influence justices to vote a certain way, change their votes, or otherwise alter the current draft in response to public outcry. And the leaker should be punished in some way, though the left, once the leaker's identity is known, can be expected to treat this individual as a hero. The reason is that the left is now openly showing its true disdain for America and all of her institutions, including the Supreme Court of the United States. It doesn't matter your opinions on abortion itself. Anyone who is intellectually honest about our Constitution and the role of the courts must admit that Roe v. Wade and the cases after it, like Planned Parenthood v. Casey, are bad law. It is a case that represents a court of nine justices, not tasked with or given the authority to amend our Constitution or make policy decisions, doing just that in order to reach the result a majority of them wanted, regardless of whether that decision had any real basis in the text of the Constitution. Roe is, and always was, bad law. And there was a time that legal scholars and observers on the left were honest about that fact. For example, Yale law professor and a supporter of keeping abortion legal, John Hart Eli, wrote that Roe was bad constitutional law, or rather, it is not constitutional law, and gives almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. He went on to point out in an article in the Yale Law Journal that the decision in Roe created a right the protection of which was, quote, more stringent, I think it is fair to say, than that that the present court accords the freedom of the press explicitly guaranteed by the First Amendment, end quote. Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe similarly explained, One of the most curious things about Roe is that behind its own verbal smokescreen, the substantive judgment on which it rests is nowhere to be found. And former Solicitor General under President Kennedy, and also a former Harvard Law professor, had this to say about Roe and the abortion right it manufactured. The failure to confront the issue on principled terms leaves the opinion to read like a set of hospital rules and regulations. Neither historian nor layman nor lawyer will be persuaded that all the prescriptions of Justice Blackmun are part of the Constitution. Even former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg took issue with the Roe opinion, saying Roe, I believe, would have been more acceptable as a judicial decision if it had not gone beyond a ruling on the extreme statute before the court. Heavy-handed judicial intervention was difficult to justify and appears to have provoked, not resolved, conflict. And she was right about that. Bad law is bad law no matter whether you like the decision. To allow a court to make decisions that we, the people, and the voters through our elected representatives should be making is authoritarian. And determining that a right is not a constitutional one in no way stops any state from embedding that right in its own state constitution or passing its own laws to protect it. Yet, since the Roe decision, the pro-abortion supporters in this debate have attempted to sell the public on the false proposition that an overruling of Roe will send women back into alleys for dangerous illegal abortions and is forcing women to have babies. Of course, those claims are ludicrous. First, if Roe is overruled, as it appears poised to be, a number of states will still likely allow nearly unfettered access to abortions. Just as our federalist system was set up, if you don't like the laws in your state, you have the option to move or to work to elect representatives who will enact laws with which you do agree. This is how the system was set up and intended. Second, with the exception of rape, which accounts for a minuscule percentage of the abortions performed in this country, no one is forcing women to become pregnant. Just as with so many decisions in life, a decision to have sex, with or without protection, always comes with some risk that pregnancy will result. And third, 
Even the New York Times wrote in one of its daily newsletters that experts suggest that if the Dobbs opinion is issued in much the same form as the leaked draft, it could result in a reduction of approximately 14% in the number of abortions each year. In other words, overruling Roe is not outlawing or stopping abortion. It never was. Indeed, the Dobbs draft opinion itself makes the result of overturning Roe crystal clear when Justice Alito writes, It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. He goes on to state, The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens from each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and Casey arrogated that authority. We now overrule these decisions and return that authority to the people and their representatives. This is not a usurpation of authority by a conservative court determined to overrule Roe. This is a return of authority from the court back to the people, where it always belonged. This conclusion is explained in this provision of the draft opinion. We do not pretend to know how our political system or society will respond to today's decision overruling Roe and Casey. And even if we could foresee what will happen, we would have no authority to let that knowledge influence our decision. We can only do our job, which is to interpret the law, apply long-standing principles of stare decisis, and decide this case accordingly. Instead, Roe is a linchpin of the left. It's not all about Roe. And it's not just because the left, for some inexplicable reason, holds abortion up as the key to all women's rights, but because Roe rests on the legally nonsensical foundation of substantive due process. Substantive due process, an oxymoron itself, is the umbrella under which activist leftist judges find constitutional rights that don't actually exist in the Constitution, and ask all of us lesser intelligent beings to trust them when they say they are there, we just can't see them. The evidence that the left most assuredly sees a loss on this issue as a threat to their steady march towards socialism and a redefining of social norms can be found in some of the most outrageous responses to the leaked Supreme Court opinion. Co-host of The View, Joy Behar, suggested that the opinion means the court will come after other rights and may even bring back segregation, a ridiculous proposition since the Constitution does, in fact, address the equal rights of those of different races. Behar further suggested this was another step toward fascism, which is interesting since allowing an unelected court to make law, as it did in Roe, is much more fascist than allowing the people to decide the issue of abortion through their actually elected representatives. Representative Eric Swalwell of California's 15th District suggested that the overturning of Roe meant Republicans would next seek to ban interracial marriage, despite no efforts to do such an awful thing, and the fact that several key Republicans and conservatives are involved in interracial marriages, including Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And there are, of course, the new cries to pack the court, again being heard as a way to sort of override this decision. Representative Elon Omar joined those voices and called the leaked opinion and ruling it contained anti-democratic, which is interesting since the crux of the decision is to return the abortion issue back to the democratic process. More public figures than can be counted say women's lives are at stake if the opinion stands, though no explanation is provided for how this is a threat to women. And the rants go on and on. The problem, as I mentioned in the earlier episode on abortion, with allowing courts to create these rights even when they are rights we don't like, or rights we'd like them to create, is that giving up the authority that should be ours to unelected judges is not what the founders intended. 
Once we accept that they can wield this kind of authority, we then have to accept the use of it even when we disagree with those decisions. It is for this reason I have never accepted it to be a proper role for judges to legislate in any way. But it is this same misunderstanding on the left about the system of our, that our founders created that leads them to believe, upon learning that the court may be about to issue an opinion with which someone clearly disagrees vehemently, that the solution is to leak it to Politico so that the public outrage can work to sway the justices to change their minds. But you see, the court is not supposed to be political, at least not when it is acting to interpret, not create law. These are not elected politicians concerned about poll numbers or re-election. They were insulated from that on purpose by the framers of the Constitution. Indeed, it is to insulate them from this part of politics that the framers set up the appointment process that did not provide for election by the people of our federal judges. What the leak does do is put the justices in potential harm's way, as overzealous abortion advocates publicly share information to harass the justices in their homes and neighborhoods. Because we have reached a point where rather than rational discussion of issues, the solution of all too many, not only on the left, but more often coming from that side of the political spectrum recently, is to engage in rude, uncivilized, and often threatening conduct to try to force their will on others. At some point, the rest of us are going to have to stop tolerating this behavior as part of normal political speech and bring people back into meeting houses and social gatherings that allow for civil discourse about current events. Of course, civil discourse is difficult when media outlets and now the government are proving themselves willing to work to suppress speech from anyone with whom those in charge disagrees, labeling differences of opinion disinformation. No more troubling an example of the present-day attempts to chill speech and to stop us from debating issues can be found than in the President, in President Biden's recently created Disinformation Governance Board. Disinformation is defined by the American Heritage Dictionary as deliberately misleading information announced publicly or leaked by a government or especially by an intelligence agency in order to influence public opinion or the government in another nation. Merriam-Webster's online dictionary defines the term to mean false information deliberately and often covertly spread, as by planting of rumors, in order to influence public opinion or obscure the truth. The left defines disinformation as anything that goes against its agenda and its narrative and is counter to its preferred beliefs. How do I come to this conclusion? By review of the statements of those supporting the Biden administration's new Ministry of Truth, or, I'm sorry, Disinformation Governance Board. This is not the first time our federal government has taken steps that appear to be trying to censor or chill private individuals' speech. During President Obama's time in office, his administration did institute a program called Attack Watch that encouraged individuals to report to the White House any seemingly unfair attacks on the president. And while it is true that the purported reason for this new disinformation board is to try to address the disinformation used by human trafficking smugglers when luring their victims, it just doesn't sit right in a nation built on free speech and the open exchange of information. As described by Politico, the board is being created to, quote, coordinate countering misinformation related to homeland security, focused specifically on irregular migration and Russia. Of course, those in charge have not always been truthful about Russia themselves. Steel dossier, anyone? And by Secretary Mayorkas' own statements about this new board, it certainly is not merely focusing on external sources of disinformation or only on human trafficking. Speaking to the National Association of Secretaries of State, he remarked, 
Each day, all of you confront threats to the security and integrity of our elections from foreign interference, from foreign interference to nefarious actors and others, and what is increasingly becoming rampant mis- and disinformation about elections that undermine confidence in our democratic institutions. Such remarks make it clear that much like the Obama administration's campaign through the IRS to target conservative nonprofits, attack watch, and the call for citizens to report misinformation about the Affordable Care Act to the Obama White House, a program that lasted only a couple of weeks because of its absurdity, this is merely code for monitoring of those who espouse ideas and information with which the administration disagrees. This is proven by the appointment of Nina Jankowitz to head this board. The same Nina Jankowitz who called now-proven stories about Hunter Biden's laptop disinformation. It is unnerving to have appointed to a board of this kind an individual who does not believe in true free speech. Remarking on Elon Musk's planned purchase of Twitter, she commented, I shudder to think about if free speech absolutists were taking over more platforms, what, would they, what that would look like for marginalized communities. In other words, in her world, someone must control speech, to ensure the proper messages are heard. It is also unclear how this board will deal with what it identifies as disinformation. What does the term governance mean in the name of this new board? How will it govern information? What will it do to stop what it deems disinformation? Would this board, if in existence during the 2016 presidential election, have quashed the information being shared from the now disproven Steele dossier? What about the Hunter Biden laptop story? Or what about the information about COVID-19 that was called disinformation by the powers that be, only recently to have trickled out in some mainstream media stories as more fact than fiction, such as the harm versus good of closing down schools? And under what constitutional theory should our government have the authority to monitor and then take action against speech, particularly written speech, that does not open itself up to the kinds of time, place, and manner restrictions of in-person live speech? As explained in a letter to Secretary Mayorkas and signed by 20 state attorneys general, the existence of the Disinformation Governance Board will inevitably have a chilling effect on free speech. Americans will hesitate before they voice their constitutionally protected opinions, knowing that the government censors may be watching, and some will decide it is safer to keep their opinions to themselves. Republicans in Congress have similar concerns, expressed in a letter several of them sent to the Secretary, in which 12 House Judiciary Committee members stated, This board is un-American, anti-democratic, and a dangerous escalation of the Biden administration's embrace of government-endorsed censorship. What perhaps they failed to mention is the more and more we learn about how often the government actually monitors our speech, the more frightening it is that it may in fact start to label it as disinformation. Sadly, what today's political discussion needs is more voices, more opinions, not fewer. But our federal government appears set on taking actions to control any messaging to better their hopes for a successful political future. Even true liberals, like noted feminist Naomi Wolf, recognize the danger of starting to classify information as disinformation or misinformation, as she is reported as having said the following. There is no such thing as disinformation or misinformation. There is only information you accept and information you do not accept. You were not born with a requirement to believe everything you are told. Rather, you were born with a brain that allows you to process the information you receive and make independent decisions. She's absolutely correct, but it appears that too many of our fellow citizens are willing to give up the effort it takes to make independent decisions, preferring instead that some unnamed elite make such decisions for them. 
there may be a turning of the tide against more information, however, with moves like the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk. Musk's takeover of Twitter may open the door to more and less censored speech. But if the government is watching, how many will truly post freely? Elon Musk to purchase Twitter and open it up as a truly free speech platform is driving the left crazy. This news was not well received by that side of the political debate. So far, those on the left successfully convinced the likes of Twitter, Facebook, and others to monitor posts, and by monitoring posts that all too often meant the censorship of more conservative viewpoints in favor of the accepted message from the likes of the Biden administration, the CDC, especially when it came to COVID, and the mainstream media, as opposed to other news sources. And though it is true and has been discussed here before that these private companies, at least as the law stands today, can can control what they allow on their platforms, they built them. But it is anti-American to censor speech, except in the most extreme cases of imminent direct threats of harm. A view of the history of the press and public speech may help us understand that there were always those spewing disinformation to try to win the debate. But it was acknowledged as preferable to allow them to speak so that all others also could speak, and that the claims and evidence on a particular topic could be weighed by us, individually, independently, on our own. Well into the 19th century, most newspapers were explicitly tied to one political party or the other. The idea that the paper was objective was not considered, but instead, knowing the bias, readers could gather information from multiple sources when reading about a given issue. As some papers grew in size and larger companies owned more and more newspapers, clear wars, both for market share and political persuasion, broke out, including the battle between the papers owned by Hearst and Pulitzer. Rather than a cause of concern, however, this battle in the realm of ideas was exactly the purpose for the inclusion of rights to free speech and freedom of the press. The shift to a more, quote, professional, and for today's media, I use that term with a lot of sarcasm and loosely, professional news media only occurred in the 20th century, as colleges and universities began offering degrees and organizations began adopting standards for journalism. The problem, however, is that these professional members of the media still carry and report with them the same biases every reporter always has. They just refuse to admit it and claim that bias as their own, such that readers, watchers, and listeners can be fooled into believing that they are being presented not just one side of an issue, but the truth, the facts. With the rise of social media, all of us became able to share our own thoughts. Some of those thoughts are profound and engaging. Others are crazy, dangerous, and based in some make-believe realm devoid of reality. But no matter, we all have our own ideas. It is true there, in, some, in most cases, is only one set of actual facts, but no one person, entity, industry, or government is the decider of what those facts are. As with all exploration and investigation, the facts are sometimes harder to discern and take time and effort to weed through incorrect information first. Social media has its ills, many of them, but opening it up to less censorship rather than more is not one of them. The response to Elon Musk's plans to buy Twitter should highlight that for, that for some, it is less important that all the information come out, and more important, that a select elite control what that information is. Because a Musk buy of Twitter signals to the left a possible return of banned Twitter users, like former President Donald Trump, they simply could not sit quietly and watch this private business transaction unfold, especially when Musk was promising a more open platform. New York Times reporters... 
claimed that they would leave Twitter if Elon Musk purchased the company. And everyone from Jeff Bezos to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Elizabeth Warren claimed such a sale would give one person too much control over the spread of information. You see, it is only they who can object to, remove, or ban your speech, but put someone in charge who threatens to let the information flow and their narratives are in jeopardy. Missing from the outcry are concerns when a sitting president was taken completely off the platform, when the story about Hunter Biden was quashed, even resulting in a temporary ban of the New York Post from Twitter, or when Abigail Schreier was essentially blocked simply for daring to try to sell her well-researched book on how our young girls are being lured into the transgender movement. The same individuals who couldn't help but react with fear and anger at the thought of Elon Musk at the helm of Twitter are the very same ones who have been claiming the past several years that any claimed bias in companies monitoring and removing of tweets or accounts was itself disinformation. Once heralded as a hero when he removed conservative account holders from its platform, now Twitter is apparently a place where women are abused, according to View co-host Sunny Hostin, who claimed that Twitter was used mostly by straight white men to use their free speech to abuse women. I don't even know where to start with that out-of-the-blue accusation, because before the Musk purchase, Twitter was doing a fine job of censoring and taking care of its users. After news broke of the board's acceptance of Musk's purchase offer, Elon Musk explained his goals for the platform. Free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. That certainly doesn't sound like someone seeking to shut down those very debates, but to encourage them. But that didn't stop some celebrities, who have had the lucky opportunity to put their full ignorance on display on that platform, from reacting as well. Rob Reiner may be the best example. He tweeted, Now that Elon Musk is buying Twitter, the question for the rest of us is, will he allow a criminal who used this platform to lie and spread disinformation to try to overthrow the U.S. government to return and continue his criminal activity? And if he does, how do we combat it? Apparently, Reiner missed the very simple classroom lesson that the solution to bad speech is more speech. And of course, these millionaires lost no time asking why Musk didn't do something they viewed as more worthwhile with his own money, like addressing homelessness. Of course, they have plenty of money they could address homelessness with as well. They don't use their millions for that. Who knows yet what a Musk-owned Twitter will look like. But the knee-jerk reaction by so many who cheered when Twitter censored users with whom they disagreed is a good insight into the greater openness we can likely expect with this new ownership. And one has to wonder now if Elon Musk is friend or foe to the left now that he owns both Twitter and Tesla. It's a bit of a dilemma. Elon Musk set to buy Twitter, abortion set to be returned as a policy issue to the states, midterm elections right around the corner. Things are certainly interesting. But neither plummeting poll numbers nor the United States Constitution will stop the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress, most of them anyway, from continuing to work to push the nation further and further away from founding principles and closer and closer toward a government-controlled society that treats freedom as a gift from the government rather than a natural-born right. But the left, for all of its progressive blustering, is running scared for many recent events. Polls show the Biden administration continues to lose any support from everyday citizens, including some of those who voted for him. Election primary results demonstrate support for more, not less, conservative candidates. And even Europe is looking at some of the more progressive movements in our country in disbelief and shock. Rising crime rates and the history of higher crime in Democratic-controlled areas is no longer escaping the attention of voters. And recent polls show likely voters view President Biden and the Democratic Party as soft on crime, with 56% of those polled in a shown Cooperman research study saying as much this spring. 
That same poll showed blame placed at the feet of the left for inflation and overall economic turmoil, from gas prices to supply chain issues. The real problem, however, is that the push further left in the Democratic Party is also shining a spotlight on that party's refusal to acknowledge and learn from history. Rather than staying stuck in our past ills involving slavery, current leaders should respect how far we have come and also recognize that some of the younger members of our elected bodies seem not to have learned any of the lessons of the two world wars or the Cold War and continue to support policies that history has shown are ineffective and downright dangerous. It should be the job of the more experienced elected leaders to point out these flaws in these policies, not to adopt them. Whether it is couched in terms of class warfare, a la Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, or in dividing us by race and an innumerable, innumerable number of newly created genders, the divisions being sown do not lead toward prosperity. They never have, but to just the opposite, and we are seeing some of that now. Democratic Party strategists are sounding the alarm. Of those polled or participating in focus groups who actually voted for Joe Biden, almost none can name anything the Biden administration has done on a bipartisan basis, except occasionally for a handful of mentions of the infrastructure bill. And the results of these studies were not isolated to a President Biden problem, but a party-wide problem. The party is failing on the economy. Failing, at least when compared to the view of how the Republican Party may handle the same issues, internationally. And failing on basically everything that matters in most people's everyday lives. But curiously, and part of the reason for the last several episodes of a quick review of history, so much of what they're pushing now is what they've always pushed and that has always failed them and our nation. The problem is that political elites, more and more, appear so enamored with their own opinion as to their own capabilities on policy issues that they are seemingly ignoring all we have already tried, all that has already failed, and all that is destined, as shown by history, to do nothing but weaken the nation based on the erroneous belief that they can actually make these proven bad policies work this time around. This level of hubris is dangerous, and rather than attempting to control claimed disinformation or to concentrate more and more power at the federal level, our elected officials would do well at this point to pause, take a look back, truly consider how this nation started, where it has been, what our founders learned when they crafted it from centuries of past civilizations, and to start focusing on what may work to best reinvigorate what makes America great, to bring us back together as a united people with a focus on freedom, not control, and to let go of their own hubris by acknowledging that we, the people, can in fact make our own independent decisions if provided the opportunity to influence policy via the democratic process, and to reach policy conclusions from access to more, not less, information. For it is from us that they derive their power, not the other way around. As always, thank you for listening. What all of these recent issues have in common is that they shine a spotlight on the need for good information. There is disinformation out there, whether about abortion rights, speech rights, elections, student loans, or just about any topic you can consider. But the cure to disinformation is not regulation of information by those whose selfish motives may affect what information we are permitted to access, but access to more information from all sources for us to weigh and consider on our own. In modern times, As we have given up too much of our own power to those who claim to be acting for us, it is time to take it back. It is time we reclaim power for the people, whether to set our own policies on abortion and other topics through the proper passage of laws, or to share information freely. As Alexis de Tocqueville astutely noted, When the reality of power has been surrendered, it is playing a dangerous game to seek to retain the appearance of it. 
The external aspect of vigor can sometimes support a debilitated body, but most often it manages to deal it the final blow. Let us stop surrendering our own power or claiming that we are victimized by the acts of others who principally should have no power over us. If we don't reclaim that power now, it may soon be too late. The next episode will explore the recent battle for our children in the form of state efforts to remove gender theory and sexualization from our grade and middle schools to return those classrooms to their intended purpose, the teaching of young children who are not to be robbed of their innocence for the purpose of some group's political gain. Until then, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can share the podcast with just one person, we can continue to further the entire purpose for it, to encourage real discourse, civil discourse, in society about the state of our nation and the world. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2022.